Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake. I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Our special guest on today's show is Amazon number one best-selling author, Alan Hunkins. Before we learn how to crack the leadership code, it's the Leadership Hacker News. In the news today, research provides evidence that leaders who are more mindful are more prone to forgiveness and that mindfulness exercises can actually facilitate a forgiving attitude and an environment in the workplace. While there are so much studies focused on mindfulness, there's relatively very little research on the potential impact that mindfulness can have. Author of the report, Johan Karamens, who studied the link between mindfulness and forgiveness, says this is just one of the small steps that we can take. And of course, as leaders, forgiving people when they screw up is a really important element of helping people learn too. The difficulty in forgiving another person often lies in the process of immersing oneself in the emotions and thoughts about what's happened, which indeed could add insult to injury. The researchers completed five separate studies with 592 people in total. The researchers found that the people who agreed with the statements such as, I perceive my feelings and emotions without having to react to them, and I am good at finding words to describe my feelings, tended also to agree with statements such as, I tend to get over it quickly when somebody hurts my feelings. The research also found that listening to guided mindful attention instructions led to higher levels of forgiveness regarding a past offence. Mindfulness might not just be helpful in reducing stress and improving happiness, as often it's seen stereotypically, but it also may be able to foster better interpersonal relationships and one that's a bit more forgiving. The findings also indicated that mindfulness is positively associated with forgiveness because of its association with empathy. In other words, more mindful people are also more likely to report at being better at adopting the psychological point of view of others, which in turn links to heightened forgiveness. So as leaders, I'd like to invite you to think about the next time one of your colleagues fails or has not achieved yet what they're trying to achieve. I want you to consider how well equipped you are to deal with that situation and how mindful you are being at that time. And mindfulness is a really key component that should be in all leaders kit bags. Being self-aware, being present and in the now focusing on what's present is a key attribute for all great leaders. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. If you have any news or stories, funny things, anything that's happening in the world of leadership around you, please share it with us through our website or our social media sites. I'm joined on today's show by Alan Hunkins. He's a TEDx speaker. He's the author of the number one best-selling book on Amazon, Cracking the Leadership Code. He's also the managing director of the Hunkins Leadership Group. Alan, welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks. 
So hitting number one on the business communication chart for Amazon is just amazing. Congratulations, first and foremost. Thank you. Thanks so much. So what's the backstory? How did you arrive at number one best-selling author versus your backstory? Just tell the folk who are listening a little bit about what you've been up to. Yeah, sure. You know, it's funny looking backwards, you know, hindsight makes everything look 2020 like it was a straight line. But on the journey, I never would have dreamed I would have ended up here. But if I had to look back and I see a common thread throughout my life ever since I was like five years old, as I've always been burning to answer the question, why do people do what they do? I am just fascinated by people, human behavior, and I was as a kid. I then moved into college. I studied some psychology. I also got very involved in theater and actually went to an acting conservatory for graduate school, worked as a professional actor, and as an actor, you're obviously putting yourself under the microscope in terms of behavior and learning a ton about that, then got involved in teaching in schools and then moving from leadership training with children in schools to doing training work in organizations, leadership training across the world. And so it's been 25 years working with over 2000 groups in 25 countries. And so for me, what led to the book was as I continued to work with more and more people, I noticed that there were these patterns of behavior that were emerging and not just patterns of what successful people did, but also patterns of what mediocre people did. What, what are mediocre leaders doing? And so what I wanted to do was be able to capture those patterns and then categorize them and to bring them to life through stories and examples and then look to the research that supported those stories and examples. And that's what led to the book. So I started with a blog post, you know, a couple blogs and just going blog after blog after blog, I started seeing these patterns in the blogs start to emerge. And those patterns became the chapters and what became the different parts of the book. So that's what has led me on this journey. And ultimately, it's all about helping people to become better leaders. And for my take, when I say leader, I'm not talking about a job title or a position. To me, leadership is very much a state of mind and a state of being. The fact is, every single one of us need to influence others in the world to try to get things done. And whenever you're in that role of influence, you're a leader. Yeah, I agree. And in my experience, I've, I've often been quoted around leadership is not a role, it's not a job title, it's just a set of behaviors that you carry. And that, of course, can be demonstrated at any age, right? Absolutely. And those behaviors can be learned. That's the good news, right? So we can continue to learn those behaviors as we go. For sure, yeah. I was intrigued to look at your TED Talk. And what I noticed about your TED Talk, which intrigued me the most, was the principle about as a leader, you always have a target. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, sure. So back in, I'd say 2002, I had this wonderful mentor, I'm still in touch with named Jeff. And Jeff and I would meet for lunch every month or so and talk shop about leadership and life. And on this particular day, back in 2002, we were finishing up lunch and, and Jeff hands me this gift wrap box, a little gift. And he says, congratulations on last weekend. See, the weekend before, I'd just gotten certified to lead a very complex training I'd spent years preparing for. So this was Jeff's way of thanking me. So I open up the gift and inside there's this T-shirt and the front of the shirt says leader. I was really touched because I really felt seen and acknowledged by Jeff in that moment because, you know, he was a mentor and like, kind of like a father figure to me. So I said, thanks so much, Jeff. And then Jeff, well, he had this shining bald head in the, in the light and he said, he's got this impish grin on his face. He says, no, turn the shirt around. So on the back of the shirt is this large archery target, right? <laughs> so I'll never forget what Jeff said next. He said, welcome to leadership. He said, as a leader, you're always a target. Now, if you're a great leader, you're the target of people's hopes, their dreams, their aspirations, even their envy. 
But if you're a lousy leader, you'll be the target of their disappointment and their criticism and their blame. So what type of leader you're going to be, that's up to you. And I think what Jeff captured with his T-shirt is what I've come to understand as, you know, leaders are in the business of managing people's perceptions. You know, in everyone's mind, we want to think that we're the best leader, we're effective, we're well communicating, etc. But that's our own intention. That's not how we're being seen. And so we have to understand, we have to cross the gap between our own intentions and how the people that we choose to lead actually see us. So that's the story of the leader target T-shirt. It's a super story and a great metaphor because ultimately, you know, we will attract what we set out to attract. And, and a lot of that, of course, is unintentional, isn't it? Oh, completely. It's, you know, I think it starts unintentional. I think the, the, the work and the process of leadership development is learning how to make the unconscious conscious. And you do that in part by doing things and screwing up, right? You make mistakes and go, oh, let's not do that again. I mean, I can think of lots of mistakes that I've made along the way. I mean, just as a quick example, I just think early in my career, I was really keen for a new position. I had been volunteering for an organization and uh, the executive director role opened up. And so I decided I was going to put my hat in the ring and step up to be the new executive director, except it was through an election process. And I assumed that I'd get voted in because I had the most experience. I was the most qualified. I was the most committed. In my mind, I was a shoe-in. Now, I had this opponent for the job, a guy named Gary. But uh, from Gary, Gary was new. I thought there's no way he's going to get more votes than me. So we show up on election day. I'll make the long story short. Final score was 38 votes to six. My first impulse is, yes, I have crushed it. I've won. And then I realized, no, actually, Gary got the 38 votes and I got six. So I got crushed. And so that was a great wake up call. I mean, a horrible mistake. And I felt terrible about it at the time. But, you know, over time and all these tuitions you pay into the school of life start to pay dividends. And so what I learned from that experience, especially in debriefing with Gary, was Gary actually reached out to people. He built relationships with them. I didn't do any of that. I assumed that what I believed in and that what I deserved would be mine. So I basically came into leadership with a sense of entitlement. And I think the sooner that we can lose that or learn that lesson, the better off we're going to be because leadership isn't about being entitled. It's not about being in charge. It's really about serving the people who are in your charge. So you talk about that quite a bit through the themes of your book. So let's get into the uh, cracking the leadership code and, and unpick some of those uh, themes that kind of reoccur. One of the things that really intrigued me when I read the book was the whole principle about why old school leadership stopped working. I think most, uh, most leaders these days will recognize that We've had to transition. We've got new ways of working. There are new ways of, of helping lead and create followers and indeed create more leaders. But what was your experience about how that presented itself for you? Yeah, so it's interesting because I think most of us would recognize that we need to shift and there's got to be this new style of leadership. But what I found was not a lot of people are talking about is why? Why do we have to shift and shift? And, and where are we coming from? What's, where's the shift coming from? So I did some digging into the backstory of where the whole school of command and control leadership came from. And it dates all the way back to the beginnings of the industrial age. So what I was fascinated by, and I read some biographies of some of the biggest people at the time, one being a man named Frederick Winslow Taylor, who is considered the father of scientific management, which was all about, okay, we now have factories. They hadn't existed before the beginning of the industrial revolution. 
how are we going to manage all the people in the factory? We've got hundreds of people, like thousands of laborers. What are we going to do? And so he created this model that was all based on command and control. Where literally, and this has to do with the fact that 95% of the employees at the time were all doing the same repetitive manual labor. So literally, it was management's job to think and it was labor's job just to shut up and do what they're told. And that mindset, that command and control mindset became the foundation, the template for how we lead. In fact, his book, Taylor's book, The Principles of Scientific Management, became the core curriculum for the founding of Harvard Business School in 1911 and other business schools beyond that. And in fact, that book was voted the most influential management book of the 20th century in the year 2001. So realizing, oh my gosh, we are all living out Taylor's legacy for better and for worse. I mean, obviously there were some upsides, but that only worked up to a very specific point. No one is working in that industrial age life anymore. So we obviously need to shift. And the challenge is while we've tried to make the shift, unfortunately, too many leaders are still working from this antiquated playbook that dates from the early to mid 20th century. And what do you think stops people moving away from that old school autocratic style of leadership? What do you think the key reasons could be? You know, if I had to boil it down to one word, and it's tricky, but I'd say the word is ego. There's something that we all get a little drunk on our own power. And when people get into that role of authority, it is so easy to fall into the trap. And I'm sure we all heard it as kids because I'm your dad. That's why or I'm your mom. That's why, you know, where we just kind of wield authority because we have it. Because let's face it, it takes a lot less effort to tell someone just shut up because I say so than it does to inquire and say, hey, what's going on? I mean, I'll give you an example. I remember when my son, Alexander, who's now 16, when he was about three or four and we had to get out of the house, um, we were getting somewhere. And as four-year-olds are wont to do, he was having trouble getting his shoes and his pants and everything on to get dressed. And I, instead of kind of doing the, the nice thing, I found myself getting a bit testy with him saying, come on, Alex, we got to go. Come on, get to, you know, kind of raising my voice. And he definitely responded to me right, with a big puddle of tears. And I felt horrible. And I remember debriefing this with my wife afterwards. And she said, yeah, well, in the moment you were trying to kind of move him along, she said, but what were you doing 20 minutes earlier to make sure that you created an environment where he could succeed? And that lesson really struck with me. So I'd say the number one thing that so many of us default to is just go, just do. Look, in the moment, it's short term, it's easier. But if we continue to go with that power struggle, command and control, it's going to get in our way. So I'd say that's the number one thing that, you know, it's so easy to default to that. You know, they've said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we have to be really mindful that we don't get too full of ourselves and our egos don't get too inflated. Sure, it's a really good lesson. And of course, it might get stuff done short term but it's never going to be sustainable and it's certainly not going to create the right habits and innovation that we need for the future, right? Oh, completely. I mean, that's why there's a huge difference between if your goal as a leader is at most compliance, yeah, go ahead, command and control all day. You'll get compliance to a point. If people are desperate for a paycheck, you'll get compliance. Now, granted, if they have alternatives like many people do today with LinkedIn and Glassdoor, they're going to find the grass greener somewhere else. But if you want compliance, command and control, but you're never going to get people's engagement. You're never going to get their commitment if you operate from that mindset, for sure. 
Another key part of cracking the leadership code for you was empathy. And it's one that really strikes home for me because I've studied this too. Yeah. And in fact, as part of my book, Leadership Cake, the E in the cake is empathy. And you call this the the basis of connection. What's the reason you, you, you focus on that as part of cracking the code? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, it's so important. Yeah. Empathy to me is the basis of connection and connection. And by the way, the subtitle of the book are the three secrets to building strong leaders. And those three secrets are connection, communication and collaboration. So empathy for me is the basis of connection because at its core, what is leadership? To me, at its core, leadership is a relationship between two human beings. And the most human and basic of connections is empathy. And, you know, briefly defined, empathy is showing people you understand them and that you care how they feel. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt said it very well. He said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And until we feel valued and recognized, it's really hard to do anything else. And I think particularly, I mean, in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, this need for empathy and human to human connection is more apparent than ever. I mean, everyone is you know, socially isolating, social distancing. We are hungry for connection. And so to skip through that and think that we can somehow proceed with business as usual is ridiculous. I mean, this is such an opportunity for leaders at all levels to reach out and connect with other people. Or maybe the most valuable thing you can do right now is to stop and hold space for people and say, how are you feeling right now? What's on your mind? How can I support you? I mean, those three questions with the power of just listening and being able to hold that for people is incredibly, incredibly powerful and helpful. That's right. And now more than ever, people are seeking understanding. They're seeking their the view of the world. They want people to understand what it really feels like. And of course, that's the core tenets of empathy, isn't it? Oh, completely. And also, and I, I can't remember where I saw this in the last couple of weeks, but I saw this around the pandemic is realizing that, yes, we are all having this shared collective experience and that while we're all in the same storm, we're not all in the same boat, realizing that different people are dealing with the situation in many different ways, whether that's health wise, whether that's financially wise, whether that's just quality of life and, and, and living at home wise. So having some empathy, understanding that, yeah, we're not all the same, though we can connect and relate to each other. The fact is, I don't need to know every single thing about you and be exactly like you, Steve, to understand and care about your experience. It's the most human of elements for us to be able to have. It's so true. And of course, sure. originally, you know, 50,000 years ago when we lived in caves and our, our language was not particularly well informed, it was still having that core understanding of how other people felt and behaved that created that community that existed even back then. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's back then. Our world was probably limited to about 150 other people. And that was about it. Sure. So just think about how we are now connected at this global scale. It's really tremendous. So if I have a leader who's listening in to us speak today, and they may be having some challenges in communicating with the people they work with or the team that, and of course, communication helps build empathy. How do we go about cracking the communications code? Yeah. So communication is trickier than it looks. You know, the fact is the human default setting, again, because we're all different, is that we all hear things and understand things in our own way. So the first step to becoming a better communicator is to recognize that we don't communicate for communication's sake, that the goal 
of communication is to create shared understanding between all parties involved. And the reason that is so important is because shared understanding becomes the platform from which we take all future action. So if we have 100% accurate understanding, we can make better decisions and get better results. If we have poor understanding, we're going to make poor decisions and get poor results. So some things that we want to do, first of all, yeah, knowing that misunderstanding just happens. It's like bacteria in the water. It doesn't mean to harm you. It's just there. You got to filter it out. We have to learn how to filter misunderstandings out of the environment. So in the book, I go through six core actions you can take, and I'll just share a couple with you today. So one action you can take to create understanding is first, have a very clear central message and put it out up front, be explicit. It should be no more than eight words, tops. And it should basically be the summary of exactly what it is you're trying to say. It's amazing how many people, I mean, how many of us get emails and the subject line doesn't relate at all to what it says. And then you're fishing through and going, what does this all mean? And you read through paragraph and paragraph. We all know those people. You know, some of us try, some of us just hit delete, right? <laughs> because we don't have time for it. All of which to say is the more that you can clarify your central message, the more people can understand what is even the field that we're playing in. I've read some studies that somewhere between only 10% and 20% of what we share in terms of content actually gets remembered. So by having a clear central message, we can make sure that people are walking away with the right 10 or 20% as opposed to their own version of that 10 or 20%. So that's one key thing. Another key aspect to communication is what I call asking for a receipt. And what I mean by that is that communication can never be one way. In fact, it needs to be three ways that we put it out there. And then what we do, so we share what we want to say, and then someone should come back and say, this is my understanding of what you said. And then the third way is back to that person say, yes, you've got it right, or no, you don't. And here's why, right? So it's that back and forth. And in fact, a great example of asking for a receipt comes from the fast food industry. So back in the 1980s, the fast food industry had some real problems with their whole drive-through process. It was very, very common for customers to drive up to the intercom, place their order, and then they drive up to the window to pick up their food order and it'd be filled with mistakes. And this went on consistently throughout the industry for years. And then suddenly, the mistake rates just started to plummet. You might be wondering, well, what do they do? What do they change? What new technology do they introduce? It was actually really simple. What happened was after the customer would place the order, the employees started repeating the order back. So if I get that right, let me just check this, please. It's uh, two hamburgers, one cheeseburger, two orders of French fries, and three Coca-Colas. Is that right? Right? So it's something as simple as that to confirm the understanding. Now, what's amazing is so many of us have meetings on a daily basis with other people. And then the meeting ends like, okay, is everyone clear on what we're doing? Great. <laughs> and we just go off, but we've never stopped and explicitly and overtly confirmed what it is that we say we're going to do. And look, if a Taco Bell franchise will do this for a 99 cent taco, don't you think that our own decisions, our actions and our own businesses are worth the same level of quality? So asking for a receipt, it's another very simple, practical thing you can do to improve your level of communication effectiveness. Love that. Super. Any other nuggets of communication code cracking you can share? Yeah, another really useful one is the idea of making all of your implicit assumptions explicit. I mean, the fact is human beings are good at many things, but mind reading is not one of them. 
And so if you've ever caught yourself saying something like, well, I sent the email, they should know what to do, or doesn't senior management realize what a stupid process this is? That's really clear in your mind, but no one else is living there except you. And so whether it's something like checking in to see, are there questions that people need clarification on? For example, this is a really good time to make your explicit assumptions around So we're all working remotely now from home. What is our expectations about how often we're going to communicate and when, when are we going to communicate and how? So are we going to be doing this all via email? Are we using Slack? Are we using text? Are we using WhatsApp? Are we using Zoom? You know, this is a great time to step back and be really clear with the people around us. What are the right modes of communication? What does urgent look like? You know, urgent might mean I get back to you within one minute, five minutes, eight hours, 24 hours. What does that mean? It means different things in different contexts. And so we can't just assume that we're all on the same page, right? So clearly when we don't have those things aligned, it creates conflict. It creates conflict at work. It creates conflict in marriages and in families, with friends. So the more we can clarify and make our implicit assumptions explicit, the more clear and effective our communication will become. They're super hacks. Thank you for sharing those, Anna. Sure. And my experience also tells me that you have to practice this. This isn't something that's going to come natural to you because we all have our own way of communicating, which is often very different from other people's based on their experiences and their belief systems and so on. So So it does take practice, right? Oh, completely. All of this takes practice. These are all skills. And the way any practice works is you start and then you try it. And then the key to all of it is to be intentional, right? So if you look at the power of habit formation, you know, there's, there's some, there's some mythic studies that say it takes 21 days to create a habit. Actually, it can vary. That's not actually true at all. But if you want to develop a habit, what we do know is that you do need to start somewhere, right? And so today is as good a day as any. So pick whatever you think will give you kind of the biggest bang for your proverbial buck and pick something and then find ways to build some successes into your habit. So don't try to climb Mount Everest all in one day, just take one step at a time. So for example, if your habit is you want to work on cultivating the habit of appreciating someone, just think, okay, today, can I be intentional? Who's one person that I can appreciate or thank in a very explicit way? And then tomorrow, practice it again. And then maybe the day after, I'll say, I'll do two people. And just continue to build that until it feels like it's happening on muscle memory. So if you think about high-performance athletes or great musicians, when you see them performing, they're not thinking. They're just responding because they've got so much muscle memory that is built into that. And in some ways, the practices and skills of leadership are no different. We want to be able to make this automatic and intuitive. And so when we're doing it, it looks like it's the easiest thing in the world. But all that easiness comes out of a lot of practice and hard work. And repeat and repeat and repeat until we've got that muscle memory, that tactile foundation that means that you just don't get it wrong anymore. Exactly. Exactly. And then also a great way to check in with that is to ask for feedback from other people. In fact, I'd say, and you can call this a hack, but uh, the number one thing that I think will help you to accelerate your leadership development is to get honest, constructive feedback from people who will give you the truth about how are you showing up. And so ask for the good, ask for the bad, ask for the ugly. And then when you get that feedback, don't defend it. Don't try to justify or blame or any of that stuff. Just say, thank you. Thank you for the feedback. And then as you ask more and more people, you'll see some patterns start to emerge. You know, when nine people start telling me, hey, Alain, you know, you can come across kind of rude and directive when you're under stress. 
It's nine against one, even though I, I think I'm not rude, I'm not arrogant. Well, nine people are saying that. Maybe it's time for me to stop and listen, right? So being able to get feedback is a great and probably the most useful tool to accelerate your leadership development. It sure is. And you don't have to like it, but you do have to listen. Yeah, I like what you said about that, but you don't have to like it. You know, I think what you're touching on, I like to say that leaders need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. In so many situations like that is, you know, it's not going to feel pleasant. It's not nice all the time. But if you're not stretching and growing, you're not learning. And so part of that growth goes out of your comfort zone to the discomfort zone. By its nature, the learning zone is not all comfortable. So go for it and grow, like you said, for sure. Part of your book, Alain, you talk about motivation being in search for the magic pill. Is it really a magic pill? Ah, there's a search for the magic pill, but the great secret to motivation is there is no magic pill. And so it's interesting how some people tend to have their go-tos to think, oh, this is what motivates people. In fact, I often tell the story about the famous film director, Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, Hitchcock was known for his disdain of actors. In fact, he was quoted as saying, all actors are cattle, right? And then later on in his life, a journalist said to him, uh, is that true? You said all actors are cattle? And he said, no, I was misquoted. I never said all actors were cattle. What I said was all actors should be treated like cattle, right? So it turns out that what, in 1965, Hitchcock was working on a movie called Torn Curtain and the leading actor in the movie Paul Newman, who at the time had been nominated for two Academy Awards, was already a bona fide Hollywood star. And Hitchcock and Newman were working on this. And Newman was a method actor, and he really liked to get into his character very deeply. And Hitchcock just wanted him to find his spot and read his lines. And so Newman came to Hitchcock one day and said, but, you know, Mr. Hitchcock, what's my motivation in this scene? And Hitchcock said, everything you need to know is in the script. And Newman came back because, you know, he's Paul Newman. He's you know, pretty defiant. He's going to say what he says on his mind. He says, no, but really, what's my motivation? And the story goes that Hitchcock turns to Newman and says, your motivation, Mr. Newman, is your salary, right? So the idea there being that Hitchcock is operating from that old school, I'm giving you money, shut up and do your job. Well, money motivates some people in some situations, but it's not a one size fit all solution for motivation. Right, And so in the book, I go through the whole section on motivation is basically humans are all operating with some basic fundamental human needs. And there's different models of human needs. But in the book, I go through four broad places of human need that people have a need for safety. People have a need for energy. People have a need for purpose. And people have a need for ownership. And what I go into depth, and we can talk about some of these, and you can decide which ones you want to talk about, Steve, is that there are things that we can do, some hacks as leaders, tips and tools and skills we can have to help people to get those needs met. And while we can't directly motivate anyone else, what we can do is we can create the conditions where motivation is more likely to happen, where people can motivate themselves. And there's been lots of studies over the last uh, 10 years about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. But when that comes specifically to ownership, how does that play out? So if we think about it, um, ownership. So the idea of ownership, you know, I love to use this example often, which is like, if you've ever rented a car, you know, which many people have at some point in their life, it's like, when's the last time you took your rental car to a car wash, right? No one's ever taken there, right? Why would you? You would never 
take care of a rental car to that because it's not yours. It's somebody else's to take care of. So the sense of ownership is that you want people to be able to own solutions, own their own challenges. And if we operate from the idea that as the leader, it's our job to fix things and give advice and jump in and help people to get things done. What's going to do, it's going to create at a certain point, a system of learned helplessness, where in some ways it's like we're the parent and they're the child. So one of the things that if you want to build a sense of ownership in people, one thing is ask them to step up. And I'll give you a, a classic example of this. Actually, this came up this a couple of weeks ago. Um, so one of my clients is uh, a man named Peter who owns a small business. And Peter was really distraught because through all of what's been going on with the economic downturn with the coronavirus pandemic is he's looking at the financials. He's like, there's no way we can move forward with the whole company. Got to ha- I'm going to have to lay off about 50% of the company. And he was struggling and struggling with how am I going to do this? How is it going to be equitable and fair? And I said to Peter, I said, Peter, you don't have to come up with the answers. Do you ever think that maybe you should just be honest and share your challenges with the company? So he did. He actually did a company-wide Zoom call, explained, was very transparent about the financials. And the amazing thing was the company just innovated and came up with these solutions that Peter never would have come up with. That involved people doing some job shares, some people deciding they were going to take unpaid vacation or time off. And they created a solution where they didn't have to lay anybody off. But again, it's an example of the reason that happened is because Peter asked. And so it's a great example. If you want people to take ownership, create an environment where they're in charge of what they can be in charge of, and then see how you can support them to create their solutions and then to implement them. By giving control to those people, it makes it more collaborative and therefore you create more ownership, right? Oh, absolutely, right? Because when you create collaboration and ownership, what you give people is a sense of autonomy. I mean, there's, and I, I love Daniel Pink. He endorsed the book. He's got this fabulous book you're probably familiar with it called Drive. Sure, yeah. In Daniel Pink's Drive, um, Pink talks about the three, three major drivers of motivation, right? So that there's mastery, that people get better at what they're doing, that there's autonomy, this freedom to do what they want, and also purpose, that what they do matters, that bigger than themselves. And so this sense of ownership really ties deeply into the sense of both autonomy and mastery, is that when people own what they're doing, they can see how they can make progress towards it, as well as they have this freedom to create things as they see fit. I have yet to meet a single person who has ever said to me, wow, you know, I had this amazing leader. And you know what I loved about them most is the way they would micromanage me, right? Said no one ever. So recognizing, right? So recognizing that autonomy and mastery are keys to ownership. Yeah. So usually at this part of the show, Anna, we will start to hack into your mind to look for your top three hacks. Now you've shared bunches of superb ideas and thoughts that will start to get the gray matter working with our listeners. But if you had to nail your top three leadership hacks, what would they be? All right. Uh, Hack number one, and this has to do with becoming more credible. Simple, simple, simple. Show up on time, right? Doesn't really get simpler than that. Yet maybe the most important thing, you know, they say that 80% of life is showing up. Because let's face it, timeliness is the easiest thing in the world to measure. You're either there or you're not. So hack number one, show up on time. Hack number two, listen. So much of everything that we've talked about around communication and around connection and empathy boils down to, are you listening to understand or are you listening to tick a box? And the goal of listening should be to truly and deeply Try to see the world through somebody else's eyes, to hear things through their ears, to step into their shoes. So hack number two, 
is start cultivating a listening habit. And I'd say hack number three, read. You know, learn something new as much as you can. I have found that all great leaders are great readers. So whether that's audiobooks or actual books or Kindle books, read and learn because there's so much out there. I feel the more that I learn, the less I know because the world is a big place and we live in a time where there's so much information that is accessible to you so easily. And if you're not taking advantage of it, somebody else is. So learn, read and lead. Hack number three. Great stuff. So if we were to now start thinking about what we affectionately call now as the hack to attack. So this is a time in your life where maybe things have not worked out well or you've screwed up, but we're now using that lesson as part of our life's work. What would your hack to attack be, Anna? Sure. So my hack to attack is recognizing the power of authentic, vulnerable communication. And I'll tell you when I learned that was when I got cursed out in front of a room of 300 flight attendants. So I'll tell you the story on this. So I was working with a group of 300 flight attendants in Chicago. It was a two-day customer service training, and I was both the master of ceremonies as well as one of the lead designers for the training. And I was getting ready to kick things off on the first morning. And before we were getting started, the audience was filling in. I was just walking around in the crowd, getting to know people and found out that people were literally coming from around the world. And so there were some people from the UK. There were some people from the US. There were people from Europe. There was a table that had flown in all the way from Japan. They were up in the front. And one person said to me, oh, look, we literally just flew in from Japan all night. So if we fall asleep in the front, please don't take it personally because the Asian table up here, we're really tired. So I meet with everybody and then it's time to get started. And so as we start, I welcome everybody to the, our training and I'm telling everyone, thank you so much for coming in from around the world. I know we have people from the UK, we have people from the US, up here we have the Asian table. And so I go on and on with this. And then about five minutes after I'm designed to start, I'm going to be interrupted by a marching band. Now this is all pre-planned. I know this is coming. So five minutes in, the marching band comes in. Boom, they go off, do their thing. So while they're doing their thing, a guy about two tables back in the audience raises his hand and he asked me to come over. So I walk over to him while the band is playing and he says to me, who the F do you think you are? Except he doesn't say F, he actually says the word. Who the F do you think you are? And I'm like, I'm sorry, you call yourself a leader? You're a racist. And I'm like, what? And he starts cursing me. Who the F do you think you are? You call that the Asian table? What kind of racist are you? You wouldn't call that the N-word table, except he didn't say the N-word table. He actually said the N-word. And he just coming on and on at me. And at this point, you can imagine my brain has exploded out of my head and I'm just trying to keep my balance and not fall over because I'm getting cursed at in front of this entire room. This is, this is going on. Right. Yeah. And I managed to, after probably, I don't know, I have no idea how much time, it might've been half a minute or a minute. I managed to extricate myself from this guy. And I go back to the back of the room where my colleague Cynthia is back there. And I said, Cynthia, um, the band is about to stop playing in about three minutes. I just got totally cursed at. What comes next? Where are we? What are we doing? Like literally, I had a complete amygdala hijack um, where I, my brain was just not functioning. And she said, okay, we're in Chicago. We're with a group of flight attendants. This is a customer service training. I said, oh, okay, thank you. So I went back up on stage and I knew I've had about 30 seconds left and I didn't have a clue as to how I was going to handle this. I just, this was not in my playbook. I was not expecting this at all. And so what I ended up doing was as they got, as the band finished, I just turned to the audience and just spoke from my heart. And I said, folks, before we go further, I just need to say, I know today and tomorrow is all about customer service. And sometimes in customer service, things get screwed up and you have to make a customer service recovery. Well, this is one of those moments. Before we go further, I need to apologize. I said some things earlier that some people found really offensive. 
And if that's true, I'm really, really sorry. That was not my intention. That's not what I meant to do. That's not why I'm here. And I practically broke down in tears saying all this to them. I was just really horrified that anyone could ever think that of me. And I said, so if you want to talk to me offline or during anything, please let me know. So the amazing thing as I finished all that, Steve, was, you know, I, I let it go and I thought it was all done. And we continued on with the training. But over the next two days, out of that 300 people, literally 25 must have come up to me and said, I just want to come over and tell you how much I appreciated how real you were with us. Because, you know, we go through a lot of these kind of things at work. And you being that authentic made such a difference. And it was from all of the consistent feedback. Again, 25 people all coming up to me saying some variation of that same thing. So what I learned there was when I let my guard down, I show up in a much more powerful way. Because up until that point, I think I still was relying on all of my bells and whistles and shiny, you know, I'm a performer, I can make this all happen, I can do a good job. And yeah, I, I was afraid of letting people see kind of what I'll call the vulnerable, the less than perfect me. And I think, you know, as leaders, if we can let our guard down, if we can take off the superhero cape and let people see that we're human like them, it actually makes us stronger. I know that's a paradox, but it actually takes a lot of courage to be that vulnerable. And when you do that, you never know who you're inspiring. And what a great lesson. And if it wasn't for an uh, individual being quite foul-mouthed and cussing at you, maybe that wouldn't have informed your future operating style in the way it has. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, you know, all these things, you never know when the teacher will appear. And I look back on that and I, I'm super grateful for the lesson. And like we said earlier, was it comfortable? <laughs> absolutely not. It was horrible at the time, but there's definitely some gold to be mined from all of that. To mine one or two more final nuggets from you, Alan, I'd like us to think about doing some time travel now. We're going to ask you to time travel back to when you were 21 mm -hmm. and bump into Alan at 21. What advice would you be giving Alan then? That's, I love this question. I love, love, love this question. Um, I thought long and hard about this. And for me, when I was 21, I was still so much caught up in the idea that talent and merit will speak for itself. And what I didn't realize is that the world is made up of human beings who seek and crave relationship. And what I would have told 21-year-old Alain is you need to build and sustain relationships. I look back, I have friends from high school and college who were really close and I just, I didn't maintain those friendships. I didn't maintain those relationships. And I look back to the beginning of my work career and I thought the work itself would be enough. And I, later in life, it was a lesson that I had to learn. I'd say in some ways the hard way is that keep building relationships and, you know, go to the people who energize you. And if they energize you, let them know that in whatever way you want and continue to cultivate ways to stay in touch and have those. Because I find the older I get, the more important those relationships matter. And if I take that at a really kind of meta level, as I think, you know, I'm now 51 and I'm what I consider on the downslope of this journey of my physical being. What am I going to take with me when I'm done, you know, in this life? It's really, it boils down to, it's the quality of those relationships. So I would say to the 21 year old, cultivate, sustain, maintain, and nurture those relationships because they're the most valuable things in the world. That's super advice and still relevant for most people who are listening today. Yeah. So let's think about how the folk listening to the show today can get hold of a copy of the Cracking the Leadership Code and more importantly, get to know a little bit more about the work that you're doing, Alain. 
Yeah, for sure. So if people want to learn more about me and the book, the easiest place, because my name is difficult to spell, I have a different URL for the book, but you can find me from there too. So it's www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. That'll take you right to the book page. While you're there, you can download chapter one of the book to get a little free sample and preview of what it's all about. And from there, that links right to my webpage, which is alahunkins.com. So you can go there. You can also welcome to link with me on LinkedIn, which is Alain, A-L-A-I-N, Hunkins, H-U-N-K-I-N-S. And obviously, I do work in the fields of leadership coaching, both one-on-one and group and organizational, as well as leadership development training and speaking. People can find out all about those things and be in touch if they're interested. What we'll also do is include those links to our show notes and our website. So as soon as folk have finished listening to this, they can go ahead, click on the links and learn more about you. Fantastic. So it only leaves me to say a massive thanks, Alan. We've had a super time talking and listening to some of the stories. Uh, again, a huge congratulations on the success of Cracking the Leadership Code. And I just want to say personally, a huge thank you for being on the Leadership Backer podcast. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been an absolute delight being with you here today. Really, really a pleasure. So thank you so much. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush and I've been the Leadership Hacker.